Hey there, and welcome to the Crafters Podcast, episode 34. I'm Vicki Howell. This episode is sponsored by Plum Deluxe Teas. So I'm sitting here in my home studio in Austin, Texas, and I am sipping on this. Listen to this. That, my friends, is the sound of winter comfort chai tea. I've got a piping hot mug right here, courtesy of the folks at Plum Deluxe. And I have to say, you know, I wouldn't necessarily consider myself a tea connoisseur. I probably am more of a coffee gal, but there's cinnamon in this, there's cardamom, and it is frankly delightful. And the fact that it also has caffeine maybe has me converted. And so if you are maybe already a connoisseur of tea, or if you just like trying new things, you should check out this company and treat yourself to a Plum Deluxe Tea of the Month subscription. For only $10 a month, you'll receive a hand-blended, all-organic, loose-leaf tea thoughtfully chosen for the season. So I kind of think of it as like a farm-to-table tea place that delivers right to your front door. And the tea club, once you become part of the tea club, you also get special benefits. So you can enjoy, you know, exclusive discounts, free shipping on purchases and access to a loving and supportive group, which just sounds like comfort in a cup to me. So how can you go wrong with that? There are also caffeine free and gift subscriptions available. And all you need to do to check all of this out is visit plumdeluxe.com slash tea and join the community. So did any of you happen to notice the covers of Time Magazine and or The New Yorker over the past couple of weeks? The existence of one key component in both images means big news for knitters. So regardless of the politics that surrounded January's Women's March, the fact that a knit and crochet, respectively, hat made obviously, using techniques that for generations have been seen as merely women's work, have now been immortalized as a symbol of the power of organization, is a pretty big deal within an industry that often struggles for its place at the respected DIY table. And as a leader in the knitting and crochet industry, this fascinates me. Which brings me to this week's guest. Kat Coyle is an artist and the owner of the Little Knittery Yarn Shop in California. She's also the designer of the now infamous knit hat at the center of the Pussy Hat Project, the initiative behind the sea of women and men alike around the world who were seen wearing pink cat-eared beanies during the recent protests. Kat and I talked about her journey from art student to yarn store owner and how within fiberline walls of her shop, with two of her most loyal customers, the idea for the color, concept, and accessibility of knitters collectively uprising was born. Let's meet her now. Kat Coyle, thank you so much for being on Craftish. Oh, thanks for having me. I was trying to remember when our paths would have first crossed. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I think that you designed something for Debbie Stoller, maybe for her first or second book. Is that right? No, um, it was uh, a skirt. I think it was for, from a skirt that I did with Amy Singer of Nitty. Oh, it was for Nitty. Okay, so at the very beginning of, just to step back, so back when Nitty launched and when all of Debbie's books started and all of the sort of when this kind of resurgence of um, knitting popularity was happening around 2000, 2001, um, there were not a ton of blogs and there wasn't a Ravelry 
or really a, a huge database of, of how to find each other. It was just sort of starting. And so when I got my first book deal, which would have probably been in 2004, I remember going after, like flipping, going through Nitty, going through books that I admired to look for designers because there wasn't really another way to find them the way that mm-hmm. there is now. And so I found you, I must have found you on Nitty, and mm-hmm. I contacted you to... Um, you know, to be a part of a book. And I remember it was it was a book about, um, you know, just sort of stuff for kids. And I remember you submitted this really beautiful proposal that was for a baby book, like a tactile kind of baby book. And it, oh, that's right. And that's it was, right. It was so pretty. Like, and this was back before there were a ton of easy-to-use graphic programs. I mean, of course, there was Illustrator and there were Photoshop. But I mean, you know, just accessible. And so you'd hand-drawn everything. And... I don't think, if I remember correctly, you passed on the project because my budget wasn't amenable to what you could do it for. And I was so, like, I thought I had so much respect for you for that because this was during, well, I would say during a time, it still happens now. But then a lot of people were asking, you know, a lot of companies were asking for knitters to work for free. Mm-hmm. And there was something about you making that choice, knowing your value then that has kind of sat with me for, really wow for, for a long time and I and and I keep it in my mind I mean I have over the years I mean I've never asked anybody to work for free ever but mm-hmm. whenever I'm trying to c- encourage young designers now to you know pay their dues but not work for free I think about how you were able to have a career on your own terms in that way if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. I, I, one of the factors also was that I had just, I was either pregnant or I had just had my baby. So I was being very selective about everything because I, the time was so precious and limited. <laughs> As you know, I think yeah. you have kids, right? I do have three. Yes. Yeah. So I, that was the 2004 is when my son was born. So I, I know I was going through a lot with, um, you know, being selective, like I said. With that type of thing. At the time, were it, you were you making a living as a designer? No, I was not. But I was dreaming about it. Right. And I mean, I, and I did the of course with Nitty, you, you do everything for free. Um, not anymore. At the time. Yeah. At the time. Oh, maybe. Yes. Yeah, maybe. I'm sorry. There was a. Uh, no, I think there was compensation. I think you're right. There was a small compensation. Um, well, thanks for, I'm glad that that sat with you that I guess that's cool. I, you know, I, I feel like I made those decisions, but I don't know how smart they are to be honest with you in retrospect. <laughs> well, I mean, here's but, the, th- as, go ahead. As I was just going to say, as you know, I mean, it takes so much time to make something and then on top of it to write the pattern. It's kind of amazing how much time it takes when you put it all together. Yeah, and even, you know, some of the largest publications are paying the same rates to designers as they did in the 1980s. I mean, there's there's been a there hasn't been growth within the industry in that way for some time. So you really have to make the decision for what works for you and your family. And, you know, unfortunately, most of the time that means that you don't actually I don't know anybody that makes their living solely as a knitwear designer. You have to supplement but at least you can do it on your own terms because you can decide if it's worth it for you to only make X amount because you really wanted to work with this particular person or 
If not, if it doesn't work within your family, or if no, I'm going to ask for more and then wait. And if they come back to you, great. If they don't, it won't be the last job you ever have or offered. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I mean, right now I'm, I'm making my living because I have a yarn store. So the design part of, of what I'm doing is, is just, you know, in partnership with selling yarn. So, uh, it's kind of shifted and it's taken a lot of pressure off of, write, off of writing patterns because I just make a sample. I write the pattern in one size and then I work it out with my customers if they want to make it, you know, and I say, well, we'll just, you know, adjust these figures. <laughs> right. Right. Although, you know, you say take a lot of pressure off and, and yes, I see in, in that respect, but at the same time, you sort of ran into starting a yarn store when a lot of people were running the other direction. Oh my God. Everything I do is, is sort of intuitive because I just fe- it felt right for me. If I actually analyzed everything, I don't know how much I would get done. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. But uh, I mean, but you started, when did you open it? 2012? Well, I, I bought the shop from there. It was already a business and I um, worked for the previous owner for about a year. I worked on Sundays, fell in love with it. And then she had to sell the business. And that was in, I think it was 2013. So this is, yeah, 2013. That seems about right. And what you said, you said you go, everything is instinctual for you. So what at that point, because, you know, there's yarn stores right now, I think is a very broad stroke generalization are struggling a bit now because of all of the opportunities there are for people to just buy to order online and having delivered in their own homes. So Mm -hmm. at, at that, what was, what do you think it was about that time or that shop that made you instinctually decide that this was the route for you to go. Well, I was uh, working here on Sundays and I was teaching uh, learn to knit classes, which is something I've been doing had had been doing for years. And I, the first day I was in here by myself, I sat in this store and I said, Oh my God, this feels like mine. You know, I just had such a feeling of, connection and you know I felt really at peace with this place I just loved it so much and I just felt very happy to you know uh be in a community and um I just I just really really liked it and I thought if I like something this much it's got to be right and what have you done to sort of nurture that feeling nurture that community make it more of your space it does take a while to figure out what you're doing. I have to say, you know, I had to figure out my customer and, um, you know, basically the type of yarns that they like, as opposed to what I might possibly prefer to use and learn, you know, what level of knitters, most of the customers, you know, what types of projects they wanted to do that, that all took a, uh, a lot of time. And one of the things that I did that really helped, I think, was I was able to stay open late one night so that it's a sort of an open-knit night. And once that got going after about a year, things started to even feel uh, more and more like a community. When people feel like they can just drop in and hang out and socialize and knit, it creates a nice, really nice environment. And so it's really about the fostering the relationships. Absolutely. I mean, oh, yeah, back to what the statement you said about buying online. That is totally what it is. If you're going to buy online, that's fine, but you're not going to have any, you know, sense of connection. And also, if you need help, 
knitting something, you know, where are you going to go? If you buy the yarn at a store, you can always go into the store and, you know, get some assistance. Yeah. And I, I mean, I fully believe that there's a place for both to exist. It's just, it's very important that we in the industry help promote both of them. There are times, I mean, I think, you know, you and I are mothers. There are times where the only time that we could possibly get yarn would be 3 a.m. in our pajamas while we're nursing. That is when it's great to be able to order online. Or if it's, you know, or if you just happen to be out. But I mean, I buy things online all the time, not yarn because I have a store, but (laughs) right. Other things. Yeah, of course. I think it's great how everything is, you know, more and more accessible. But the actual brick and mortar shop provides a place to learn and socialize and feel like you have a community. And also yarn is tactile, number one. So if you come into a shop, you can feel the yarn and see the colors in real life. And that is very helpful. But, you know, I'm in a big city. If you live out in a place where there's not a lot, you know, to shop, then of course, then it's great. You can buy online. And that's, that's really cool now that you can do that. What have you learned about just the customers in the LA area about their levels of about, do you have a certain type of customer that comes in? Do you have a lot of sort of busy executives or moms or, or brand new beginners or intermediate beginners? You said that you had to learn for a while what your customer was like. Yeah. A lot of my customers, I would say are their skill level, skill level is at the newish, you know, spectrum. And, um, they're really into chunky yarn. They're into bold yarn, more artisanal yarns, and simple but really, you know, stylish projects. So something like the, the, one of my most popular brands that I carry is Loopy Mango. Yeah. So it's a beautiful yarn. It's really fashion forward, and all the designs are very simple. So that's the type of thing that my customer really likes. And another yarn that's really popular with my customer is Malabrigo. The price point is reasonable. The yarn, the yarns are like, you know, merino, so they're very, very soft and they're kettle dyed, so they have that artisanal look. And another popular type of yarn is alpaca. So my customers like soft. (laughs) And they like things that are a little bit on the chunky side. That you know, in general. Do you think that the last at least is sort of based on what's on trend right now? Because big knits are so on trend at yes, this point in time. Exactly. It's on trend, but I've been here four and a half years and it's consistently been, been consistent. the go-to. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. It's, and it's warm in LA, so it doesn't have to do with like, you know, <laughs> practicality it just has to do with the look. They're very, you know, my customers really like to get a certain look that they're attracted to. And so that's great. It's, you know, that's what they're into. I don't have too many uh, customers that are, let's say, you know, lace knitters, people that want to make a really complicated um, project with very difficult technique. That's not the customer that I have in my store. But I do think that there are stores in LA maybe that do have that type of customer. It's just what is going on here in in my area. Yeah. Like maybe a knitter, you get some of that. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. But but then again, maybe... Maybe it also speaks to the level of assistance. I mean, we were talking about yarn stores and about how one of the reasons that you go to a yarn store is because there are people there that can help you. Mm-hmm. And and maybe when you're at the level where you're working on complex lace, you don't need as much of assistance. Exactly. So, you know, I mean, 
Maybe. <laughs> um, yeah, totally. Because there's a certain level of hand-holding that I've noticed, um, you notice over my years of teaching that beginner to intermediate knitters and crocheters really need, and it really is, it isn't all that much about instruction and more mm-hmm. just about sort of the like pep talks kind of thing. Mm-hmm. That's a part of it. And uh, yeah, confidence building. And yeah, yeah, I, you're right. I guess most of the customers I see in here are beginners because they do need the help. And then more advanced people are just on their own. Although um, some of it truly is, I mean, at least it was for me when I started, you know, forever ago, it, a lot of it for me was going to a yarn store was a community that I, I mean, I did at the time I didn't have a lot of crafty friends and, and just being able to sit down at a table with a bunch of, you know, mostly women that I didn't know before. And there was immediately, you know, mm-hmm. a common bond to me, it just felt like such a great opportunity of, to have conversations with people that I maybe wouldn't know under any other circumstances. Uh, told, yeah. That, I love that. I love knowing people from all walks of life that come into the store. That's definitely such a huge part of why it's so fun to be in the shop. And, and, you know, my regular group of knitters are actually pretty, they're actually very accomplished, you know, so they're, they're hardcore knitters and they like to come in and sit around and knit sweaters and it's just, it's fun. It's really fun. It's very healing. I think, you know, I think women are good about talking about issues and problems and personal things and societal issues and everything. And it's just, it's a very soothing hobby in that regard that you can have that, uh, community aspect to it well and i think that if you have something in common that way that we were just speaking of it opens it's it's almost it it cuts through some of the guard you know it sort of opens a person up to be more willing to speak about a topic or hear hear Mm -hmm. a point of view than they would just going cold into a room of strangers or people they didn't they didn't know. Mm-hmm. And that's exciting for me because for me, creativity and openness is a huge opportunity just for us as a society to kind of work things out, to hear each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You've, yeah, that's good. you've done, um, in, a, in a time of social media, you have done a pretty incredible job at saying, staying relatively anonymous. Mm-hmm. I, I, <laughs> I, normally, I normally do a ton of research before, uh, before these interviews. Not a ton, but I do a significant amount. And and it was really hard to find stuff on you, like past interviews and that type of thing. And I was wondering how you're handling going from what had to be pr- pretty, like a pretty conscious crafting of, of persona um, hiding, uh, how you're handling now being out in sort of the forefront of an entire movement as the designer of the hat that has become the symbol of uh, really of women. Uh, it's interesting. I, I, I don't know really how to explain it because it happened so fast and it was so unexpected. So, um, it's just, I don't know, I, it's just, I, I don't, I guess I don't really feel like it's me. Do you know what I mean? It's something I did and it went out there and it really took off and it's just, it's amazing. And the visual aspect of it was incredible, but I just don't feel like it's, it's me. I mean, it's definitely not me. It's just, you know what I mean? 
I don't know how to explain it. I totally get that that you, you've got that whole. You've, I, I get where you're what you're saying. I guess I'm just wondering if there's more, if you're getting more attention. Oh yeah, for I mean, and how you're handling just even that aspect of it as somebody who seems to tend to not draw as much of that as a lot of people yeah. are doing this day and age. You know. Yeah, it that part's interesting. I just think it's you know you just. With all the interviews, I just try to, you know, be myself and be honest. Um, it was a little awkward, you know, being on television. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, great for your business. Or, yeah, it's nice. Or it's not. Nice. Let, let me ask you that. There has been, there's actually been all kinds of drama surrounding knitting and this particular movement of late, including shops a particular shop straight up saying they will not sell to women who are going to make these hats. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, then, and then the opposite, you know, stores that are like, you know, um, I know Makers Mercantile in in Kent, Washington gave a bunch of pink yarn for free and then the rest was heavily discounted to anybody that wanted to come in and sit down and knit these to be sent off. Yeah. Yeah. There's a whole, well, that's the thing about having your own business. You're, you're free to do whatever you want and run your business however you want. So I certainly had a lot of people in here was very, very busy making hats because of course we weren't selling them. They, people were just making them and donating them. So I sold quite a bit of pink yarn as I think a lot of people did. If I had any idea how much pink yarn I would need, I would have been (laughs) better prepared, (laughs) you know? Um, so I, yeah, I sold a lot of yarn and that part was great. Uh, did you get any pushback? Than, go ahead. Did you get any pushback from customers? Um, I did receive some emails from customers that said they were disappointed, uh, and weren't going to shop here anymore. But overall that was extremely rare. Mostly I've been receiving a lot of, um, I would have to say love, you know, yeah. I mean, people are coming by the store and hugging me and thanking me. And it's, that part is, is really sweet and telling me how much it's meant to them to have something to do yeah. somewhere to put their anxiety, some small way to express their feelings. And also originally the way that the uh, founders of the pussy hat project had, had, um, designed the, the, uh, project was that if you made a hat then you would write your name your contact info and the issues that were important to you and then when the person who received your hat it wasn't so anonymous so it was also a way of being represented at the march if you couldn't go yourself sure and i had a lot i've had a lot of people um you know tell me how much that meant to them that they were able to be represented without actually being there so overall i would have to say it's been a very 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 positive experience as a business owner, because I, I got a little, percentage-wise low, but I got a little pushback just wearing one um, mm-hmm. publicly. Um, but I I don't directly stand to lose money from that pushback. It's all social media pushback because I have, you know, my business is me versus having an actual shop. How, as a mm-hmm. business owner, do you handle negative pushback when it's, about a subject that's so that people on either side seem so passionate about. Mm-hmm. Well, but the negative pushback was very small. 
So I haven't responded. If somebody wrote to me, then they were unhappy with what I've chosen to do. I just, to be honest, I just ignored it. Yeah. Um, because I don't know what to say. It's like, if you're not, if, if that makes you unhappy and you don't want to shop here, then that's your prerogative. You know, there's nothing I can do to change what happened. (laughs) You know, I can't make anybody feel better about what, what I did. I designed a hat. I, you know, collaborated with the founders of the Pussycat Project and designed a hat and it just really just took off. How did, how did they find you? if that bothers somebody, that's that's just something that I can't remedy. Uh, they're, they're customers and friends of mine, and they're part of the community here. And they came into this, you know, they're regulars, knitters. After the election, they came in and they started talking about, a, you know, a vision they had of a sea of pink, everybody wearing the same hat. Well, it did start off. We, we came to up with the idea of having pink. That was a little bit of a discussion. And then it was like, yeah, a whole sea of pink. And man, that... That vision came true, and that that part is just so amazing. It's it's awe inducing. Yeah, it was amazing. It's amazing. It's it's great. (laughs) How did you? Well, I have so many questions. First of all, so it wasn't always pink hats. Was it always cat themed hats? Was it always pussy hats? Was it always was the idea always to sort of reclaim something, you know, derogatory that was said, or was this something that evolved like amidst it was very Malabrigo in your store. No, it was very quick. It was a discussion one afternoon about uh, Krista Suh, one of the founders, had said that she was going to go to the uh, march in Washington, and she said, wouldn't it be cool if everybody wore the same hat? And the other founder, Jaina, was here, and the three of us were just talking. I was like, yeah, I'll do a hat. Let's ma-. And I, I said, we have to make it very, very simple so that anybody can do it, even if they don't know how to knit. They could learn how to knit it. It has to be a simple shape. I said, um, this rectangle shape hat when you fold it in half it's the simplest hat you could possibly do um and it looks like you have cat ears and then right away it was like <laughs> that connection was made oh the know. cat here the cat ears came before the theme it just but it happened like literally like you right were just riffing sitting there you guys it's were just, just riffing like playing oh, that's so amazing the, yeah so the three of us were just like you know and i was then i turned around i was like we talked about colors that discussion lasted about five minutes and i said well what about you know we quickly decided pink was it and then i said what about this like fuchsia this nice dark rich strong yeah yeah do it and uh but from the beginning we were saying you know the pink is good because it's going to come in so many different shades and the sea of pink will just be beautiful so it just it was very spontaneous from my point of view and now you're seeing fashion magazine articles talking about how pink is the color of woman this year yeah, it's the color. Isn't that great? <laughs> you know what I love about this even more is that I love that the sort of like genesis of this on, from your perspective, from a designer's perspective, is making the pattern, the project as absolutely accessible as possible for anyone to make. And that, that sort of like base just you know, feeling from you lent itself perfectly to what the overarching fight was about yeah it's it's i think it yeah exactly which is inclusion yeah at its very at its very very root you know equality inclusion yeah we want exactly that's so true and and just from being in this business for so long i 
having so much experience with new knitters, being scared of stuff, I was like, we got to make it flat. It has to be a rectangle. But then to write up the pattern, I was like, well, you know, I'm, you know, put some ribbing in it, you know, a little bit. Cause I knew right away we could, you know, we could change it to garter stitch. It could go chunky. It could go, you know, we could do whatever you want. If you knew, if you're a really good knitter, you're going to, of course, right away do it in the round and do a three needle bind off or, you know, however you're going to modify it. And that's exactly what happened. So I, that part was great. <laughs> what does this feel like from your perspective? Like something starting literally like grassroots in your, like amidst your, you know, loopy mango, <laughs> um, yeah. turning into, I mean, not the exact one, but a hat inspired by your design was on the cover of Time magazine. Your hat yeah. in illustration, illustration form was on the cover of New Yorker. Yeah. What, I, what does that feel fabulous. like? It feels great. It really does. It feels really good. But once again, it's, just, it's, it's like, I just feel like a small part of the puzzle. You know, I'm just a, I just, I did what I did and then it just took off. So it feels really exciting to be a part of it. But, uh, you know, I just, uh, I just, I just, don't take it a hundred percent personally. Like, I don't feel like it's because of me. I just feel like I was a part of it and it feels that is, it's exciting and it's really cool. Very. What do you think exciting. it says that something that is still, unfortunately this far into existence is still sort of considered woman's work ending up being oh. like the ultimate symbol of strength and coming together of women. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that's really important to me that that part of it is so meaningful to me that people, that so many people hand made these hats. It just, that part is really moving and it gets me, that part gets me emotional because I feel so strongly about making things by hand. It's just pretty much my whole, you know, it's what I love the most about living is making things by hand and the value of it is, you know, uh, it's so deep, you know, when you're making by hand, you're putting yourself into everything. And if that's women's work, then that is the power of women. And that's mm -hmm. why women are so powerful and why, why this took off, I think is it's such a meaningful way. And, uh, you know, they weren't manufactured, they're not mass made, it wasn't planned, it wasn't you know, for profit, you know what I mean? It just, that is so meaningful. That part is the, that's just really great from my point of view. I just love that. And, you know, anything that's, you know, quote unquote, woman's work had, I, I saw a lot of things written about it that, you know, you know, demeaned the color, demeaned the, the, the look of the hat, demeaned everything from both sides, from, mm -hmm. you know, from all, from all points of view. And that's, too bad. That's a very narrow point of view. That's a very narrow way of looking at things when you're um, mocking people for uh, celebrating life by making things and bringing some kind of beauty and joy into uh, into into a movement or expressing themselves. And you know, I think that people that demean that are missing the point, and they don't see the connection of how deep it is. I think what was disheartening for me was about uh, how many women were doing disservice to other women by making some hateful remarks, like I think mm -hmm. you're referencing. 
and how Mm -hmm. that's so counterintuitive to what the entire movement is about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Has Um, there been any, um, has there been any kind of like coming down period now post this now that it's now that the, you know, the big hat storm has, has gone down Is there now that the high is sort of quelling a bit. Um, not really, because after the march, there was so much excitement, and then and now it, it has quieted down a lot, and I'm I'm ready for that. So yeah, I don't feel any sense of letdown. I'm it's all it's all happening in the way it should, and it, it's good. <laughs> yeah, I, I call that pussy hat madness when it was <laughs> you know a good solid month of like that's the only thing that was happening in my world. And yeah, I'm I'm happy that things are transitioning into more normal. <laughs> Is do you think that part of the new normal though could be transitioning into another aspect of activism? Yeah, possibly. You know, yes, yeah. So we'll see. You for years um, had a blog, and I guess it, it looked like time frame wise, it might have you might have stopped writing on it about the time that you started either prepping or actually owning the yarn store. Um, was was your blog at some point another creative outlet for you, or was it a source of income, or both? Oh, yeah, it was just a creative outlet, and um, I was dedicated to it. I, I pretty much stopped it, though, because my uh, longtime partner, my boyfriend, passed away. So at that point, I, I just kind of stopped everything Yeah, and with, withdrew, because there was nothing that I wanted to say in that public format about the situation, you know, so privately people that knew me just, you know, they knew that I just stopped, um, you know, writing online because of, of, of what had happened. I'm so sorry. How, how were you able to find your creative mojo again then after going through something like that? It, you know, it's so much bigger than the creative you know, friends, Yeah, <laughs> you know, friends and work. I had to work and I, a uh, really good friend of mine owns an, uh, after school arts, um, program. And I worked for her for a couple of years and I was teaching, uh, all different types of types of handcraft and art. And I did that for a couple of years and it was great. So be just being busy always helps. And, uh, there was no time not to be busy, so that was good. And then that that just eventually, um, when I came into the yarn store, and that's, uh, anyway, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> well, I mean, um, maybe the community that you found there could have been yeah. part of your part of, part yes. of your healing yes. path. And like they say, time time heals. So yeah, the more time that goes by, the more healing happens. You, um, you, we've talked about you being a designer and a small business owner. You're also a writer. Do you remember what your first sort of creative love was? You know, honestly, ever since I was a kid, my first love was always handwork, knitting, crochet, embroidery. I used to just loved, always loved all of that stuff. And there was an arts program I went to in the summer and we did everything from ceramics, you know, to puppetry and theater I just always 
just loved the, everything that I could do creative. I always loved. And the things that I loved the most were things I could do, um, I think by myself. So if you're embroidering, you're just doing it by yourself and knitting and just, I just loved, always loved that stuff. You liked the solitary aspect of it? I do. I do. Yeah. And then when I went to school, when I went to college, I studied fine arts. So I do have a painting background as well. Has anything that you learned while studying fine art translated to what you're doing today? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, anything having to do with color, uh, all that the painting background helps with that. And then my, when I was doing a lot of embroidery, um, painting and drawing came into that because I would create my own designs. And I just think that any any training you get in fine art is going to help you in, in any craft because there's so much uh, connection with um, uh, throughout any of the arts. Was your was your mom a handicrafter or your dad? My mom is the one that taught me how to knit and crochet, and my dad was a dabbler. He he liked to play music creatively. He was a librarian, and he was a writer. How do you how do you infuse creativity in your own children's lives? Is it the same way that your parents did by signing you up for classes? Or are they part physically part of your business at all? No. Um, when my son was younger, I took him to a lot of arts classes and music, and he you know he enjoyed that. But he's going to be thirteen, and I just let him do his own thing, whatever he's into, and he's very interested in computers. So he has his, his own creativity and I don't, I don't mess with it. <laughs> I let him find his own way. Is it, is it graphic design interest or is it more like coding? Yeah, right now he wants to do coding. So I'm, he asked me to buy him some books and he's teaching himself that. And I just heard it. This is completely sort of like sidebar. But I just heard an article or heard an interview on NPR this morning about how the future of coding is blue collar, which I found mm. so interesting that um, there was the, there's this whole organization that talks about how the same characteristics that make a coal miner are applicable to someone who could be a coder because a lot of the same qualities are needed. The, the patience, the being able to sit for hours to, to focus, to hyper-focus on and on something like finite. Um, mm -hmm. And there was this whole program that was training, that was like translating the training um, over. It was fascinating. Be interesting that is to interesting. see. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see where it, because I, we, right now I think that we would probably hands down not think of that as a, as a blue collar job. So it'd be mm -hmm. not that it matters, but I just thought it was a, it, it was a fascinating glimpse into what the future of technology. That's good. That's hopeful. I, I like that it's being interpreted that way. Um, with my son, he, he can sit for forever, for all day. He can be in front of the computer. And of course he likes games like most kids, but he's also very inquisitive. And I was delighted when he told me he was teaching himself all kinds of different, you know, languages and coding. And so I, yeah, it's wonderful. I think, you know, but just because I don't understand computers that well, doesn't, you know, I don't want to be closed minded about it. And I think that I love that he's fascinated by something and that just happens to be computers. And, you know, I was fascinated with my own 
artistic pursuits when I was a kid and I love to just, you know, read all day or draw or all that stuff. And he wants to do computers. So who knows what that means, you know? Yeah. Have you ever it's thought a, about the parallels between, um, between coding for computers and writing knitting patterns, which is essentially code? Right. Yeah. I, that's, yeah, I hadn't thought about it, but it is. I wish a I could say language. that I came up that with that myself, but a couple. <laughs> but for this podcast, I was interviewing um, a woman named Libs Elliott, um, and she uses code to create quilt patterns. And they're, mm. they're amazing, and she's the mm. one that sort of like drew that parallel when we were talking about sort of what I do in knitting, and 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 it sort of blew my mind because, especially because I don't think of myself necessarily as somebody that has the patient for that type of coding, but I, one of the ways I make my living is writing knitting books, you know, writing patterns. And, um, I think that's just another way, much like making sure that a, or helping for a knit piece to be on the cover of major magazines. Um, Mm -hmm. but equating pattern writing to coding gives it a gender neutral value. Yes. That's great. That hopefully can help lift the interesting. Well, I'm so thrilled that uh, I just I'm so thrilled that you're happy and that you've got a great store and that you are part of something that nobody could have I don't think seen coming and I appreciate it and it's been so great talking to you. Thank you so much. I appreciate that you wanted to talk to me. For more information on Kat and to see photos from inside her shop, go to her show notes page at vickihowell.com/craftish. Thanks again to our sponsor, Plum Deluxe Teas, and be sure to check out PlumDeluxe.com to enter a world of, well, frankly, delightful teas, along with the community that surrounds them. Craftish is a Camp Bell production. It's produced in Austin, Texas by me and mixed and edited by Dave Campbell. Music is provided by Explosions in the Sky. Thank you so much for listening to the Craftish podcast. If you're digging what you hear, please share with a friend or anyone that you think might be interested in the topics and guests that we cover. And if you haven't so far, please be sure to subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcast from so you'll never miss an episode. We're off next week while we put most of our focus on finishing touches for the planning stages of a Kickstarter campaign we're launching soon. So stay tuned for that. But we'll be back in two weeks with best-selling craft author and TV personality, Mark Montano. Until then, breathe in, craft out.